When Swedenborg first experienced a spirit speaking directly to him, the spirit was sitting on a block of ice. Unusual? Yes. But also entirely apt, because no matter how weird spiritual experiences get, the subject matter is always precisely relevant. That's how spiritual substance works. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the key to changing a worst-case scenario into a best-case one. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, tells us about the purposefully beautiful binding and ornamentation of the first editions. Then we travel to 1744, when on a September Sunday evening, Swedenborg's personal thoughts were interrupted by a cognizant spirit nearby this week in history. Welcome to another episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Hey, Curtis. Hey, this is awesome. I love this. Yes, it's always fun to hang out inside off the left eye with you and and everyone listening. And so this past week's topic, we were the Swedenborgian Life show that uh, got published on our channel on Monday was called The Practical But Weird Way to Deal with Anxiety. Beautiful. And so that's the topic we've been exploring all week. And if you haven't watched the show and you're listening, you can go find it on the YouTube channel or listen to it as a podcast if you just want the audio on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel. And, and so this is the second, uh, you know, before our break week, we explored anxiety with our show Spirits Cause Anxiety. And now um, this time we're, you know, offering this way to deal with anxiety. And, and as part of our exploration in this every week, we post a new reflection question to just start some community conversation around the topic. And so right now, Curtis, you and I will respond to this question. And and so for people listening, you can find other people's responses on um, on the YouTube community tab uh, where our YouTube channel is or on our social media channels um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the reflection questions there. And you can read other people's responses, too. Cool. So here is the question. What areas of your life do you find anxiety popping up around? Wow. Hey, can I just say all <laughs> yeah. the above? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just everywhere. Um, yeah. So I would say health is anxiety causing for me. Mm -hmm. um, money, figure, or like figuring out the ins and outs of that. Um, yep. And then I would say, yeah, it's a, there's times when work believe it or not, I will, I will have concerns like, oh, how's this thing going to go? It's all kind of tied together for me right now because I'm slowly slogging my way through this like huge health thing that I've been going through yeah. the past couple of months. It's like uh, acid reflux and shingles and just all this amazing Ugh. layer on uh, upon layer. And I, I've just like something that's made it a lot worse is all this anxiety and stuff. Um, because I'm just everything that happens. I'm like worst case scenario. Oh no, this is going to lead to this. This is going to lead to that. Um, and uh, it makes it worse, you know? Yeah, totally. And that's like when I, I, I agree that nothing, nothing is safe. Like everything, uh, you know, an 
anxiety is willing to take anything as fodder for, you know, wrapping it up and, and getting, uh, making it, you know, constricted or feel hopeless. Um, and, and when I, in thinking about it for myself, I was feeling like, um, like my, my experience with anxiety is that it took me a while to really focus on not the thoughts, but how it feels in my body and, yeah. and letting the feelings just be there and let it, let them just go by eventually, you know, like recognize, oh, this is anxiety that I'm experiencing. It's just a physio, like there's this physiological response that's happening in my body and it's going to shift. And for me, it, the anxiety comes up more frequently around things that I have like associated trauma with, you know, like uh -huh. that's, that's really, those are the things that, uh, if I have if I have some kind of past trauma, then those anything resembling traumas I've experienced are are more sort of weak to that to that an anxious response, you know. Yeah, and you know what I found when you're talking about like look at the feeling is that having such a tangible thing to be anxious about when I can really observe my anxiety in action. So some yeah. symptom will happen, and I can say. I can see, uh, feel the feeling and observe the thought saying, well, well, this is going to lead to worst case scenario and, and it'll describe it. And we're getting so used to seeing that it made me realize that my mind, which is really hell coming through the lower parts of my mind, does yeah. that about everything in my life. I yes. just put everything it goes to worst case scenario. But I didn't have the label of like, oh, that's trying to do worst case scenario. This has really built for me that th this mechanism that can see, Oh, like with, with, um, you know, what if this thing you're working on turns out this way, it's the worst case scenario. What if your yes. life turns out this way? It's the worst case scenario. It's, it's, it's saying like, what if things went really wrong there, but it doesn't announce itself like that. It just it announces itself like, here's a probable outcome. It's, yeah. not, it's the worst case scenario and it never happens. <laughs> and what's something interesting is I love that worst case scenario is the opposite end of the spectrum of like the Lord's will for us, which is another line that I've tried to sort of practice for myself is what is the most loving way I can hold this? You know, like hell wants to offer, here's the worst case scenario, like whatever's happening to you right now, it's bad, you know? And then if I have a moment to recognize what's happening and that I'm even having those thoughts and yeah, like those, those thoughts are feeding off the physiological anxious response that's happening in my body. Um, that like, I can say, wait a second, what is the most loving way I can hold this situation? And even, even have the thought experiment of like the, what just feels unbelievable to your mind of like, what, what could be the most loving outcome, reason, everything, and just have the most loving one be the truth. You know? Yeah. Well, you, and you know what, when, when you said, um, you know, we think worst case scenario, but um, but God is there. We are literally in the best case scenario. Yes. Right now. Everybody. Right. Because ev divine providence, that's what it does is create the best case scenario, uh, given yeah. given where we are, given the circumstances. And so when I that's just hitting me in a cool sort of way. But you look at what what I have anxiousness around is all kinds of stuff that I'm holding on to. You know, what if, what if I lose this faculty X or what if uh, yes. thing, thing Y that I wanted to try to do, I no longer can do. 
But if we're talking about me being as happy as I can possibly be forever, mm-hmm. everything is going really, really well for that. This is the best. This is the best case scenario. <laughs> it's always the best case scenario. That's hilarious. And it's true that that uh, you know not believing those thoughts and then choosing to try to uh, connect with love in some way, you know, like to connect with the reality of love is what will help you to, to get a little more aware of that best case scenario angle, you know, like it is when you're under the clouds, when you're in the rain, it's really hard to say, this is the best case scenario, you know, like that part of yourself is like, no, it's not. I'm just down here getting wet and some branches fell on my head or whatever. And, uh, but, but that there is this, there are these tools that can help us, uh, you know, get, get connected to that best case scenario reality and, and the love that is actually pervasive and surrounding us no matter what is happening. So Totally. Okay. Good, uh, good thing to keep in mind. Definitely. And well, that was fun discussing that reflection question with you and people listening, you know, you can, uh, we'll have a new one coming up uh, for next week's and, and the show for next week is um, now moving from the topic of anxiety to near death experiences. Here's the show, a little sneak peek to what is coming on Monday on the YouTube channel is called Howard Storm, Jeff Olson, Trisha Barker, and Swedenborg, Lessons from Near-Death Experiences. Yeah. And so people might, that was a lot of name dropping, you know, people might recognize some of those names. Um, and uh, and so Curtis, I'd love for you to tell us about what, what working on this show was like for you. Those, if you're talking about trying to connect to love, and understand best case scenario. And as you said, get a real sense of the love. Right. Near-death experiences are how you get a sense of the love. Yeah. They they have infused my reading of Swedenborg with the sense of the love, which is there in Swedenborg, but you don't, it's not always jumping off the page at you. But in the near-death experience, it jumps off the page. Yeah. And talk and, about worst case scenarios becoming de- best case scenarios. Like near-death experiences hold that space because it's so often people are going through these you know, horrendous physical circumstances and then are awakened to just this amazing presence of love, right? It's absolutely right. And it's so cool. And those people on that show, Jeff Olson, Trisha Barker, Howard Storm, are three high quality individuals. I just was really excited to get to talk to. Uh, I've you know benefited from their materials. Um, Howard Storms was one of the first near-death experiences I ever read, had a big mm-hmm. impact on me. So it's just really cool to get to hear from them practical advice and then let Swedenborg step in and do what he can do, which yeah. is provide this amazing framework and, and give structure and form and, and backstory to things. I really think Swedenborg plus the modern near-death experience is an amazingly potent combo. And I'm really just happy to trot that out whenever we can. That's awesome. Well, I know I got to, you know, listen to these interviews that you had with them and I just, yeah, talk about feeling the love and knowing, uh, you know, I just was so touched by what each of them had to say from their experience. And like you say, it's bringing it down to that practical level. Um, and, and they all have just such good pieces of wisdom to pass on to our listeners. So I hope everybody will check out this Monday's show. And uh, so you can watch that on Monday, the Swedenborg in Life at three o'clock Eastern time or 
noon Pacific time or 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And then we'll be exploring just the the lessons of near-death experiences further in our Wednesday News from Heaven at the same time and then Friday's Q&A show, Swedenborg Live. So uh, I hope everyone will join us for that this week. And thanks, Curtis. And so I'll uh, catch back up with you at the end of the show to learn where Swedenborg was this week in history. Sound good? Can't wait. And now for our weekly visit to the desk or the office or the, what is it, the warehouse, the lab of the New Century Edition? (laughs) All of the above. (laughs) Hello, Jonathan. (laughs) Hi, Chelsea. How are you doing? Good. And I am really glad to have you here, um, as usual. And, And as I've said before, but I feel like it's worth saying again, the New Century Edition is like the content fuel for Off the Left Eye. And... It's mm. core to our production, and I'm just delighted to get to sit with you here week after week and hear what new insights you've gotten from your editing work, because it's these kinds of insights that just kind of continue to blow our minds and give us new food for fodder in terms of, uh, you know, different angles on, on Swedenborg's works. And so it's always keeping it fresh and interesting. So what do you have for us this week? Well, I just want to say that it's such fun for us at the NCE because we produce these books and then to see them going out into the world through Off the Left Eye is just a thrill from our end, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a very fun symbiosis. Yeah. So the thing on my mind this week is continuing to celebrate the birth of the shorter works of 1763 into the world. Fabulous. And And so everybody, you can get a copy now on Swedenborg.com or you can go to the Swedenborg Foundation YouTube channel and listen to the introduction to the 1763s that we've talked so much about. That's right. That's right. I think about three weeks ago, the uh, audio became available on the Swedenborg Foundation's YouTube channel uh, called Seeking Greater Engagement. Yes. And if you type in Swedenborg and Rose or something, you'll, you'll probably find it there. Nice. So there was something that came up that really intrigued me in the research for that introduction. Mm-hmm which is that even Swedenborg's enemies, even people who were critiquing his work in reviews, had to admit that they were gorgeously printed. Oh, <laughs> yes. And this is interesting. There, there are three points. Let me give you three quotes. One is from Alnander, who was the first person who used Swedenborg's name in print in association with his books, because mm-hmm. Swedenborg was still publishing them anonymously. And he says, but should I include include or simply avoid Assessor Emanuel Swedenborg's unusual and odd works, which have been rather ambitiously printed in London Hmm. in several titles in quarto size? Now, quarto size, uh, the the way that they divided up book sizes back then, it depended on the size of sheet of paper you started with. But uh, if you folded it once, it was called a folio, and those were really huge, like coffee table-sized books. Mm -hmm. And if you folded it once again, you had a quarto, which was pretty um, almost square. Uh, If your listeners are familiar with the NCE Deluxe Volumes, we tried to emulate that size, basically, with our purple Deluxe Volumes. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they're like seven and a half by ten and a half inches in the first edition. Depends on how you trim the pages. But 
this was actually considered um, in the 18th and 19th century as kind of a luxury. Uh, I don't want to overstate that, but it, but it was kind of a book collectors really liked quartos. You know, they were they were cool. It's a cool size. It's it's a larger sort of book. Uh-huh. They were more expensive to print because they had more uh, blank paper, and Swedenborg would put ornaments in and other decorations and so on, which would make them kind of just a kind of high end. I mean, he intended the message for everybody very clearly. But they were beautifully done. Yeah. And here's another quote like that. This is from Ernesti, who really uh, did not like Swedenborg's works <laughs> and was very critical of his theology. And he says at one point when he's criticizing him, uh, these books must also be very expensive to himself, for he, of course, must print these books at his own expense meaning you couldn't get anybody else to pay (laughs) (laughs) to get this stuff printed. And he adds, and they're all printed in a sumptuous manner. Mm. Right. So even while he's criticizing him, he has to admit they're they're really nicely printed. You know, he probably shouldn't have done it, but he did it well. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, they just sort of dismiss, even if they acknowledge, but it's like, it is that it obviously catches their attention, you know, to say, oh, yeah, he really thinks that these ideas are worth something. Yeah, you don't have to mention that detail. Yeah. And there's another one, the royal librarian, Christopher Gurevel, said of Swedenborg's books, all these are in large quarto and superbly printed, mm-hmm. like the longer and shorter works published in London from 1749 to 1758. Those were Swedenborg's other theological works. So Gierwell comments on the fact that they're printed in the same size and format. Which is something to even notice as well that, like, we've talked about his, you know, um, the the changes he made in his publishing for the 1763s after his publishing gap and stuff. But the the quality of his publication of the actual volumes didn't change. He's been doing this since the beginning. You, you know, like, he's been... This has been something worth it to him. That's right. And um, uh, the translator of Secrets of Heaven, Lisa Hyatt Cooper, when she read my introduction, she pointed out a very interesting thing, which is that uh, Swedenborg presumably, when we talked in a prior episode of this podcast about the money being devalued and the war going on and all that, that he had a lot less money to work with. He had the option of going with a smaller book and cramming more type into into it. He had the option of not doing the ornaments, just sort of wedging it out like a pamphlet, you know, wall-to-wall type or something. It's very interesting that he didn't do Mm -hmm. that, Uh, that he actually put a line in the sand of like, no, this is what I've been doing. I'm going to keep doing this. We don't know why he made the choice that he made. There's no letter or anything that I know of that says why. But uh, if I had to guess, I would say that he knew he was working on a set. Uh Uh-huh, yep. And it's not going to be a set if you bring out these little— they were perfectly capable of printing small books back then, but uh, Mm. duo decimo Mm -hmm. and 16mo and and even smaller— 
And um, uh, but he didn't do that, and he didn't go with cheap print or just doing pamphlets. There were lots of pamphlets around then, but he he didn't do that. Instead, he kept the ornaments, he kept the beauty, and he made the works much shorter mm-hmm. in page count. Uh, which is a very interesting choice because I think Swedenborg's nature was this was a guy with a lot right. to say. <laughs> he had planned on his, doing his book on the soul's domain in 4,000 pages. Right. <laughs> uh, he did Secrets of Heaven in 4,563 quarto pages, you know, big, big pages. Um, so it's very intriguing to me. I kind of think it's cool that he felt that no, although he's very clear in his theology that what is inward takes precedence over what is outward and all that kind of thing. Nevertheless, the outer form, and particularly what he says about Scripture, the Old New Testament, it's so important. That's where all the holiness and the power is. And so he's not going to go cheap even if it costs him three times as much to do it, he's not going to go cheap on the publication. He's just going to shorten what he says. So he'll say about a third of what he was planning on saying, but say it in the same way, in the same beauty, even to the point where his enemies have to admit, yeah, "Yeah, awfully nice (laughs) books. Yeah, I don't agree with the thing they say, but really beautifully printed. (laughs) Nobody can argue with that. Yeah. That's right. And I'm so struck by the idea that, of course, the ornamentation is a visible mark that ties them all together. That's true, isn't it? And I know, yeah. Yeah, it's something they all have in common. That's right. All except, am I right? Because you mentioned this true Christianity, but that was that tricky switch that happened at the end. Or were there other ornaments in true Christianity? True Christianity does have some other ornaments in it, but not... Not on, on the, the title, title page, page and not on right. the first page of main text where you'd usually have one. Right, You're right. right. But he does get some at the end of chapters nice, as it unfolds. Nice. Uh, but yeah, they, they all have them. And that seems to be an, an important part of the book too. And earlier English translations uh, set that stuff aside, but it actually communicates kind of where you are in the text. Yes. Um, you know, and so... It was worth something to him to, no, we're keeping the ornaments, we're keeping the quality high. And I think it does speak to, and this is why we wanted to emulate it in the NCE Purple Deluxe Volumes, that um, it says something about the passion and the yeah. care of the people who put this together. We we care about this. You think what you want of it. But yes. uh, know that some love went into it. Definitely. Oh, that's so interesting. And that, and it's, it's such an, you can sort of, a takeaway that is coming to my mind as well is just that, you know, it's fun to think of Swedenborg thinking about that, the, the visual experience beyond just the content mattered, you know, the, the presentation. And, and then of course, with what we do at Off the Left Eye is that, you know, we want to give these ideas the best presentation that we can manage because it can aid in in the reception, you know? So that's that's very cool. That's right. They, off the left eye is not skimping on yes, graphics right. or, or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, that, I hadn't thought of that connection, but that's really 
part of the the presentation and part of the the joy. Swedenborg writes at some point about the fact that spiritual ideas need to be joyful so you'll take them into yourself mm. and digest mm-hmm. them. You know, like the beauty and the aesthetic of it is part of the experience. Oh, well, that is wonderful. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. This was great to hear about that from you this week. And will you stick around now to hear where Swedenborg was this very week in history? Oh, I'd be delighted. All right, here we go. Here we are, our weekly dip into history. This is our chance to explore the historical and experiential context of these books by Swedenborg, which really are the foundation of what we do here at Off the Left Eye. So welcome, Curtis and Jonathan. Hey, yeah. You hate to admit it, but those books deserve a little of the credit for our our channel's success. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So just last week in our episode uh, on the sudden title change of True Christianity, we were exploring uh, where we traveled to the very end of Swedenborg's lifetime, 1771, so the last summer of his life. And this week, we're going back very early on in Swedenborg's spiritual awakening to the year 1744. Mm. And just to remind you, it was in June of 1744 when Swedenborg had his first wakeful spiritual experience, which was that incident with the fly that we've talked about. Yes. And for anybody listening who hadn't heard that and is so interested about what is this fly, you can listen to our episode um, First Taste and you will hear all about it there. What, what's a better hook than, oh, that incident with the fly and leave it at that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it sounds so intriguing. You can't say no. And so now that was June. And so here we are in September. So we're this week in history. We are going back to where Swedenborg was, and he. this was the very week that he was not just visited by a spiritual fly, but he was spoken to by a spirit for the first time. Ooh. And His trademark. This is when he really nailed his brand. Right. That's right. And, and something that's amazing to me. So first of all, I'm going to read you the account that he has, and then we can kind of digest it together. And one thing is this, where he writes about this is what we call his journal of dreams. And so for him, it was just that, just the journal that he wrote his dreams down in. <laughs> um, and Swedenborg's remarkable for having kept one of those and for having the fact that we have it today is amazing. It's really cool to go in and read the inner conscious, you know, private experience of this guy in the 1700s. So a plug and for the Journal of Dreams. Yeah. A, a play-by-play of somebody uh, opening up to the spiritual world. Yes. And that fits together with like, I really do think it kind of lends credibility to Swedenborg's experience. The fact that it wasn't like, well, one day he was walking down the road and then suddenly, you know, just spirit started talking to him left and right. You know, this, this we are stepping into what has been this gradual um, shift going on in his inner spiritual experience. So for a couple of years, yeah, yeah, where he was having intense dreams and and a variety of other things, and then he has this fly, uh, you know, this you, sort of you know the incident, yeah, yeah, the incident with the fly. I don't have to say more about that here. <laughs> um, and 
And now he's being actually addressed by a spirit and not just not just a sense. He actually describes that he could feel the like the influence of spirits around him, but it wasn't. But that's in the same way we might say like the vibes or something. But this is the first time where he sees someone who is speaking to him and who is a spirit. So um, without further ado, here's here's what he has recorded for this for this day, which in the Journal of Dreams is written September 21st. Here's what he writes. This was a Sunday, which we know was the 23rd that year, 1744. So we know it wasn't the 21st. Before I fell asleep, I was in deep thoughts concerning the things on which I am engaged in writing. Then I was told, hold your tongue or I will strike you. I then saw someone sitting on a block of ice and I was frightened. I came, as it were, into a vision. I held back the thoughts and one of the usual tremors came over me. It means that I should not persist in it my work, you know, like the writing that I think he, he said he was engaged in so long, especially on a Sunday or perhaps in the evenings. There it is. I Dramatic. love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he takes a very, it, it's interesting in the Journal of Dreams, how he interprets what he's dreaming about. And here he thinks it's just don't work so much on the weekend. I know. <laughs> it's total Swedenborg. Go to the most dramatic, bizarre, intense experience you can find and have it translate into something that's pretty much the the seven highly effective habits of highly effective people like (laughs) just like practical advice for your day-to-day don't work so much on sunday but that is it everybody we or a lot of people when they come and watch our youtube channel they say how do you induce the kind of experiences swedenborg has and swedenborg over the bajillion volumes he wrote never really talks about it because he says oh the important the nuggets the real treasure that i got here is how to like be a good worker and how to make sure you don't do bad things to people and be nice that that, that is always what it comes back to right that's what that's it's right. pointing back to and it's funny too because you know us us humans, that's what we need sometimes. It's not enough for somebody to say, hey, you know, you should maybe not work so much in the evenings. It's like, no, you need a spirit on a block of ice being like, hold your tongue or I'm going to hit you. <laughs> like, okay, fine. And to my mind, he doesn't really connect the dots in this, the way that he describes it in the Journal of Dreams, which is true of a lot of things in the Journal of Dreams. It was right. written for himself. And exactly. He so doesn't he even know say- what he meant. He doesn't even describe the person sitting on the block of ice. Like, I want to know what is that person wearing? Is it a guy? Is it a girl? You know, like he just says someone. Oh, there's so much there that he isn't saying. So, right. And and he doesn't say why it makes him afraid. Mm -hmm. But there are some other passages, two passages in Spiritual Experiences, his unpublished draft of Spiritual Experiences, which was another kind of spiritual journal that he wrote in subsequent years. And then two passages in Secrets of Heaven, which he published. Mm-hmm. And they, you can't connect a direct line to this experience, but scholars have done so before because it says that before he started having open interaction with spirits, there was a time when a spirit spoke a few words to him. Right. And so people think, well, this is, this is the best candidate. You and know, hold your tongue or I'll strike you, you know. And that broke him open to this, um, awareness, which I think you were alluding to, Jonathan, that what it what it said to him and what he doesn't say in that quote from Journal of Dreams is that this really told him these spirits are not just around you. They know what you're thinking. That's it. That's the heart of it, I think. And he doesn't say that in the Journal of Dreams 
account there, but he does say it in those other four places. And uh, what I gather from one of those passages is that he truly thought that it was taught by the Bible that only God, yes, God does know our thoughts and our deepest feelings and our spirit and stuff like that. But he, and I don't know whether it was widely taught in the church or what, but he had definitely gotten the impression that nobody else up there knows. That's between you and God alone. Yes. So the shocker was actually kind of a shock to his religious understanding, his spiritual understanding or something that this, and, and he doesn't even say, unfortunately, what he was thinking. He was thinking about his book. He was writing about organic forms and things like that. I don't know what he was thinking that was so yes. offensive to the spirit that he threatened it. Hey, stop it or I'll hit you, you know? <laughs> yes. But somehow that was enough to indicate to Swedenborg that this spirit knew exactly what he had just thought. And it kind of shattered this whole idea of reality such that he writes about it four times later. about yeah, that was a moment that I found out, oh no, they know everything. And he adds in some of those other passages they know more than you know about what you're thinking. <laughs> they know why you're thinking what you're thinking. They know details. They know what your purpose is, what lies in your heart, stuff that we don't even know ourselves. When he looks back on his experience, that it's like all along he sort of should have known that the influence of spirits around us and our connection with spirits are actually this essential, serve this essential function through how we are governed in our in this world. Like it affects our consciousness. So he says, like, um, such proofs of this fact that spirits, that the Lord governs us through spirits existed with me, that I am now astonished that yet I did not come into the persuasion concerning the Lord's government through spirits, not until this spirit, you know, addressed him. That was also a quote from SE2951. But that right. like part of what is so eye-opening to so many people is that the connection that we have with spirits is so intimately connected with our life, with our whole consciousness and just everything. They're just a part of the deal. So that's... If if memory serves, he, he even sees experiments in the spiritual world where if that influence is cut off, you just fall down basically dead. Like you're, you wouldn't have a thought, you wouldn't have a feeling. If, think about... It's so essential. Think about what this displays in terms of it being a commentary on God as the director of life. Because here you have Swedenborg being let into this really exclusive club of human beings that know about the closeness of the spiritual world and, and the way spirits interact. And it's this huge thing that's going to shape his whole mission going forward. You'd think God would say, okay, how am I going to make this a really special moment? I know I'll have a <laughs> bright angel say, <laughs> Welcome to the spiritual world. Right, right. Be or I will come down and and deliver it to him, and I'll make sure that there are tall um, thrones. It's just this weird, random seeming breakthrough, strange threat that he gets. Yep. And that, at first, I was going to say that just shows you know that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. That that what God is trying to do through life is just ineffable. But uh, something that may be a little effable about it yeah. is that what it was showing Swedenborg, I think, was this is the everyday working interaction that we have. Like, look, there's these, yes. these people, the, the spirits have like these minds that can be problematic and they can be pushy and violent and they just pop through in these sort of random ways. Here's an example of the kind of 
influence that can be exerted. And you're going to remember this one. <laughs> to me, it helps his credibility because if you were going to write some self-flattering story about your great spiritual experiences, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have the first one be, hey, shut up. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm talking. And, yeah, I'm over it. Yeah. <laughs> and before that, the fly incident. I know. He's he's graduated. Yeah. Which is also not to... very glorious. Exactly. No, it's like it's like, no, that neither of those make you sound like you're somebody of great importance. <laughs> no. <laughs> and like you were saying, to the point where uh, you know, what you said in the beginning of how isn't that interesting that Swedenborg brings it right back to, you know, oh, this is about me and how much I'm writing on the evenings or on Sunday and maybe I shouldn't, is like he uh this that that just fits actually in the whole design that like if we ever dip into the the spiritual world or if we dip into the uh inner meaning of the word you know of the bible or something it's not about somebody else somewhere else having amazing experiences it's going to speak directly to you in this incredibly intimate way that is going to mean something exactly for your life you know like i bet I bet I don't know what it was, but it was something about that block of ice that probably spoke right to Swedenborg. You know, like I think of him, he's living in Sweden. They have blocks of ice or, you know, like how people had ice back then was like he knows something about that. And like sitting on a refrigerator. Yeah. Somebody's sitting on it. And just just the fact that whenever we are to tap into the spiritual world, it's not going to feel like we're being taken out of our life somewhere else. It's just it's going to feel all the more real and exactly appropriate to where you are right now, you know, like it's going to fill in and enrich it rather than feel like you're in some alternate alien world. That's even a great it's weird. point. <laughs> and, and in journal of dreams, this is 242. If you look at 248, Swedenborg himself, just six numbers later is sitting on ice. It, you're it's kidding. interesting that he, he oh. has an experience of seeing himself sitting on ice. So that's interesting. And I don't know whether, is this like on a lake in Sweden? Is it too thin? Is there a danger he's going to go through? Right. Whatever, you know, later on he talks about ice as being just like those hard thoughts that haven't been warmed by the heart and compassion and that sort of thing. Yes. And and I know it's like, it, it's such a little thing, but just that he says, he has this mention of holding back the thoughts and then having one of the usual tremors come over him. The usual tremors, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I know we talked about that in our uh, guy. 10 early signs of a spiritual awakening, but I I don't know. It just is, it's just a, another fascinating detail of his process of like, this thing happened and then it's not over. You know, it wasn't just seeing it. It had this like bodily effect on him. And then he really gets it. <laughs> and I love the fact that at the time he thinks about, because he's looking for life lessons, isn't he? Right. Anywhere, something could be communicating to me about what I should be doing here. So he's trying to glean life lessons, even if it's sort of rebuking him or, or changing his ways. Uh, but it's interesting to me that it seems as though only later does he realize, oh, and that was also the first time I realized that they can read your thoughts and that this is going to go to a very different level. He even shares in Secrets of Heaven 6214, which is one of those passages that at first it was really annoying to him, <laughs> the thought that the spirits knew every thought he had. It was like, this is going to be intolerable. You know? Yes, right. <laughs> like, turn it off. <laughs> and then he said, after a few days, I got used to it. <laughs> it. It almost seems like he could have been 
trying to sue themselves by putting that explanation in to say, oh, like this spirit talked yes. to me and threatened me. Oh, it just means this. It's just my dream telling me this. Whereas later, maybe he realized, no, that was somebody coming through. That was That's somebody. Right. Yeah. Somebody who disagrees with my thought about something. Yeah. That's a good point because he is in the habit of taking his dreams and interpreting them for his life. And so now it's this like wakeful experience, you know, that has more real, like more presence and reality than his dreams even have had, but that he, he immediately applies his same tactic to it. You know, like, what does it mean for me? But then it, it later on in retrospect, he realizes, oh, these spirits are everywhere. They know my thoughts. And, you know, that it's a little bit weird to get or hard to get accustomed to, um, or it takes a few days, like he says. And, and that's something he says in his works is that it's so core. And yet he totally acknowledges that, uh, this is going to be a hard one for people to swallow, you know? And yet my experience doing, you know, sharing these ideas with people through off the left eye, it's one of the most liberating points and life-changing points of the whole thing is just your thoughts are not from your own, your mind is not this isolated black box. There's actually inputs coming in from the spiritual world. Um, and, and so you're not, you know, you're not necessarily responsible or it's not just arising in your own mind, all the crazy things that might be coming through your head. You've got to take yourself personally. Yep. (laughs) If, if you don't have that piece, you will run around in circles forever. Yeah. This was very fun to explore with you both. Um, thank you, yeah. Curtis and Jonathan. And very much fun. I look forward to dipping in inside off the left eye next week as well. All right. Great. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Please consider letting us know by rating us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. When you do, it broadens the reach of this show and all our offerings at Off the Left Eye. To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. We're in the final weeks of our $10,000 match, so that means that from now until the end of September, any amount you give will be doubled. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself, so I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye.